And uh, church family, good morning. It's good to see everyone, and I'm excited for us to, to continue our time of worship together as we, as we walk through uh, the scriptures. Uh, one quick thought I just I failed to mention last week is that throughout the month of January, we, a few weeks ago, we laid out vision, mission for this next year. Um, those of you that are, that are partnering with uh, Hope Valley as, as covenant members, that's, that's happening all the way through the month of January. So anytime that you want you can go in there and, and um, submit that application or submit the, um, the, uh, the church covenant. Uh, if you're first time and you're interested in that, we can chat with you about that as well. We have covenant forms in the back. Just want to let everybody know that that's something that we're doing all the way up through the month of, uh, through the month of January. So if you've got your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them? Because we're going to be back in the book of Genesis. So the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of uh, jump in where Pastor Kevin left off last week and do a little bit of summary, and then we're going to bring us back into the next couple chapters in, in Genesis. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, it's not easy to admit when you're wrong, right? It's not easy to admit failure. In fact, most of us uh, don't want to get to that point where you have to admit that you actually that you failed in something. It's just it's not something that you enjoy doing, and that's sort of the human experience is that uh, we don't uh, we don't like to admit when we fail. And uh, in politics, there's a there's a phrase that gets thrown around when you when you've done something wrong, and you don't want to admit that you've done something wrong, but you kind of have to. There's a phrase that's often used, and it's the phrase "mistakes were." made, right? Mistakes were made. It's like this ambiguous, like, yeah, there's an acknowledgement that something might have happened, but I'm not getting anywhere close to acknowledging that I had anything to, to do with it. So this idea that, that mistakes were made, and, and I, I, I don't want to pick on just politicians, but they have like, like mastered this. Um, so there was one journalist who, who called it, um, it's like the king of non-apologies uh, is, uh, one, it's been defined as a passive, evasive way of acknowledging error while distancing the speaker from responsibility for it. Um, I found a quick uh, video of some, just some demonstrations, some examples of this. I thought that would be, uh, be interesting, so check it out. I acknowledge that mistakes were made here. I accept that responsibility. And uh, he's right, mistakes were made. And I'm frankly not happy about them. No one is blameless here. It costs so much money to pay for these campaigns that mistakes were made here. Uh, there may be a situation here in which a serious mistake was made. Clearly mistakes were made. There were mistakes made in Iraq for sure. That's just a, just a sampling of, uh, of that phrase being used. Politicians, presidents have used it all throughout the years uh, recently, I was watching a, an interview with Bill Gates, and he was being quite interviewed on why some of the mistakes happened and, uh, with the response to COVID. He said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll acknowledge that there was definitely some mistakes made. But what, here's my, my, my favorite. It's actually, I shouldn't say favorite. It's not good. But um, the, the crazy example. So 50 years ago, um, there were some experiments done by the U.S. government, and there was an advisory committee that was put together to, to look into some of the things that happened. And, and listen, listen to this. So they said after their final you know, report and investigation was done, they admitted that there were some wrongs that were done. 
1945 to 1947, 18 people were injected with plutonium without their knowledge or consent. And so they came out and said, yeah, we want to acknowledge that there was, there was a, a few wrongs that were done in the experiments. We do not like to admit failure. And we'll go to almost any length necessary to make sure that I'm not the one that's responsible, even though, uh, even though I'm, re- responsible, I'm responsible. <laughs> one more quote. John McCain said, said this. He said, mistakes were made in the Iraq war. And they were asking him, well, isn't that the president's failure? And, and he said... He said, uh, all the responsibility lies in everybody in positions of responsibility. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Um, The truth is, is that we all fail. We all have failures in our life. And one thing that we see in Scripture is that the characters that we see in Scripture all fail as well. And it records it. Like, it gives us all of it. It shows us the good, the bad, the ugly uh, and so here's where we have to be careful, because a lot of times in the church, we, we like to elevate heroes of the faith, right? And so we, we look to, you know, Father Abraham, and we look to all these great examples, and they're amazing examples. But there's also incredible examples of what not to do. And so we have to be careful that we don't elevate someone else as if they're the hero, when the only hero in the Bible is Jesus, right? And so we have to say, okay, yes, God did amazing things through them, but it was God who did it through failed, fallen people. And so here's what it should do for you and me. Instead of looking at these people like, you know, Joshua and Gideon and Moses and David and Daniel and like all these amazing people that it's like what we should actually do is let's look at the amazing God that did amazing things through normal people like you and me. So that means that's it's good news for us so that we could come to a story like this and we could say, hey, if God can use Abram, you know what? I think he might be able to use me as well because I make mistakes just like that. The reason I say that is because as we walk through Genesis, we're going to see like this up and down, up and down. Where it's like, oh, yeah, he's falling after the Lord. Oh, look at this amazing faith. And then like, wait, what? Is this the same, is this the same dude? And then we're going to say, okay, that's great. He picks it back up. And, and so we're going to see this pattern. But I want us to be careful that we don't point fingers at them when we should be looking right at our own hearts. Because if we're honest, that's, that's every one of us. These, these patterns, because we're fallen. Because we've sinned against God and we have this sin nature. Even though we've been redeemed by the Lord and covered by him, our sins atoned for by Jesus, we still have this wrestle with the flesh. And so we're going to see the same thing as throughout these, throughout these biblical characters. And you look at Hebrews 11 and all the amazing, you know, hall of faith passage that we, we, that we look at, this chapter where it highlights the, the faith that these people had. And it, it, it does, but it points to more than that, more significantly to the God who worked through them to do amazing, amazing things. And if God can use them, then he wants to use you and me. And so as we come to this passage, let's remember and remind ourselves of the God that we serve. So in Genesis chapter 12, Pastor Kevin talked to, talked to us last week about sort of the introduction to this man named Abram, the man that God was going to call out and use. And, and from this point forward, he was going to draw him out. We haven't gotten to the covenant yet. That's coming in 15. But was, was drawing him to himself, uh, was, was calling him out and was sending him out on this, uh, this journey that he was going to lead him in. And so Abraham, Abram stepped out uh, in faith, and then we find out in chapter 12 that very quickly 
because of a famine in the land. He goes to the land that God calls him, and then he just keeps going. He keeps on going down. He finds himself in Egypt, uh, not where God had called him to go. He steps out of that place, uh, seeking safety and refuge in Egypt. We also saw that while he was there, he sort of train wrecked because he was worried about his wife who was beautiful. And so he, you know, he, um, he lied and said, no, she's not, my, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And uh, so then Pharaoh takes him. The, the judgment of God comes upon the house of Pharaoh. And then they send him out and they say, what have you done? So this is sort of a recap from last week. Now what we're going to pick it up. Is, is at the end of this story, so now God is, is, is drawing them out of Egypt back to the place where he called him from the beginning. So if you look in chapter 12, uh, let's begin in verse, um, in verse 14 just to kind of uh, catch us up. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. They gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. That's important. It's going to come back in just a few minutes. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning them, and they sent them away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that they had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev to far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where, the, where he had made an altar to the Lord. And there, listen, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. A couple things that I want to just, just to, as we get started, a few principles that as I was reading through, the Lord kind of struck in, in my heart um, as that relates to my own life as I, as I look at the example of Abraham. The first thing is that walking outside of the will of God always leads to trouble. Walking outside of the will of God always leads to trouble. To trouble, And so at, very, at the very beginning, Abram steps out of God's will and desire for him. He lies to, Egypt, the, to, to Pharaoh, and, and it sets the stage for a lot that's going to come after that. Now, you might say, well, actually, but, the, but I mean, look, the Lord blessed him, the Lord protected him, and the Lord did. The Lord did protect him in, a, in an incredible way. But the consequences of his, of his choices are going to go with him from this point forward. We're going to see in just a little while that everything that Abram achieved and got in Egypt caused him trouble, causes trouble for him later on in life. Even all the riches and all the things that Pharaoh poured on him as he sent him out, that comes back in just a minute to cause a separation between him and his nephew. We're going to see that most likely Hagar is a gift from Pharaoh, and you, we all know what's going to happen later on in, in Abram's life with, with Hagar. And all that originated and started right here with this little narrative in, in Egypt. When we walk outside the will of God, it always leads to trouble. I like what Warren Wearsby said, though, because he said, but when we don't let God rule, he overrules, and he accomplishes his purposes, but we pay dearly for our disobedience. The truth is, is that my little action, my little disobedience is not going to sabotage God's rule. It's not going to do it. 
Um, it is going to sabotage things in my own life, but God's still going to accomplish his purposes. Um, it just might take a little bit longer. It might be a little bit harder along the way because of my disobedience against the Lord and, 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 and the, the consequences that, that may follow. But the Lord watched, watched over him, and the Lord took care of him and, and led him through. Um, but this is what I love, the next point that jumped out to me is that God welcomes us to return to him. God welcomes us to return to him. Here's what I love. In, in the, where's the first place? So after Abram comes back from Egypt, where's the first place he goes? It says he goes back to Bethel, the place where he was before, where he erected an altar to the Lord, and it says, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So the truth for, for you and me is this, is that we're going we're gonna to mess up, and we're going to mess up again and again and again. But the Lord, by his grace and his mercy welcomes us to come back to him. And that's exactly what Abram does. He goes back to call upon the name of the Lord. What's, what's going to be neat is I think that's going to set the stage for the next two chapters where he's following after, after the Lord. But, but I love the Lord. That no, no matter how messy things get, he welcomes us home. You know, think about the story of the, of the prodigal son where he, he abandons and leaves his father, right? We, we know that story. And at, at the end of the story, after he's squandered his wealth on, on reckless, sinful living, he realizes where he's at and he makes his journey back to the father. When the father sees him far away, it says the father runs to him and embraces his son. And he says, my son is home and he welcomes him home. That's the God that we serve. So the reason I say that this morning is because I don't know about you, but there's so many times in my life that I can get beat down and discouraged over failures again and again and again. And what the enemy wants to do is drown us in sorrow and guilt and shame when the Lord says, son, come home. I just, I just want you home. Daughter, I just want you home. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So when you're wondering, is there, can the Lord accept me back? And have, I, have I gone too far? The answer is no. There, there's no place that you could go that the love of God can't reach you. There's, there's, no, there's no pit that you can fall into that's too deep that the Lord can't rescue you out of. And so the Lord is... The Lord is there, the Lord is with us, the Lord is, is for us. Corey Tinboom, Corey Tinboom said, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Third point, just that, as I was observing this passage, is that walking with God always leads to honoring God. So when we walk outside of the will of God, it leads to trouble, but God welcomes us home. But when we walk in obedience to him, when we walk according to the will of God, it leads to honoring him in our life. So example is this. If I want to be a, a husband that honors the Lord in my marriage and the way that I treat my wife, and I want to be a, 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 a dad that honors the Lord in the way that I shepherd my kids, and I want to be a man that, that works hard and honors the Lord in the way that I work, and if that's what we want to do, it starts with walking with God. So it has to be that place where we, as by, by abiding in him, then we, the fruit of that is lived out in our lives. But it starts by walking with, 
God. And that's what we're going to see here in this chapter. So it's, again, these are going to be some examples now, finally, that we can look to Abram and say, he's following after the Lord. He's following after the Lord. And so now we get to, to chapter 13 as we're, as we're continuing to walk through here, because now there's going to be an example where this is put to the test again. Abram has an opportunity now. Um, and so in 13, uh, beginning, in verse, uh, beginning in verse 5, and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, and so that the land could not support them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between our, your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. So here's what Abram is saying. Is right now the land's too big for all the stuff that we've got. Uh, or something we have is too big for the land that we're in. So then you take a place. Now, Abram could have suggested that he just pick because he, um, he was the patriarch. He's the one who could have asserted himself, but he didn't. He said, Lot, you pick a place, and then you take it. And what Lot does, though, instead of seeking the Lord like Abram did, Lot opens his eyes and begins to look around to see what's going to be most beneficial for him. And it says in verse 10, And Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, and the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar, uh, this is the Lord, before the Lord uh, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. All right. You remember when we were in Genesis uh, chapter, or the, the first several weeks in, in Genesis when um, the... Uh, when Eve, so Genesis chapter 3, when Eve saw that the fruit, it says that she saw that the fruit was good and she took it. We talked about the phrase, she saw and she took. We looked at it again um, when the, uh, the sons of God takes the daughters of men. It says, and they saw the daughters of men and they took them. It's, it's this, this connotation of, of coveting after something for one's own gain. I saw it and I took it. It's a very similar language right here that Lot is looking out and he sees something and he takes it for himself. He sees something that is good, but not necessarily because God is leading him in that direction, but he thinks that it's something that's going to be good for him. What's interesting that is that it's in the area, in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, from history and from passages later, we already know. We see this and we think, that's not a good place, right? That is, this is not going to go well for Lot. And Everyone knew at that time, in fact, we're going to see in just a few verses of verse 13, it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord, and everybody knew it. They had a reputation, and yet Lot said, that's where I'm going to go take my family. I'm taking my family. It looks beautiful. It looks great. There's going to be success here. It doesn't really matter what they're doing around, you know, in the city. I'm taking, that's where I'm going to take my family. I think about that, men, uh, we have to be very careful about the influences that we allow our families to be um, surrounded by. No matter how profitable something may look, a decision may, an area may be, we have to guard our families against the wickedness that's around us. So Lot takes his family there. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look at the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. 
Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled at the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So once again, the Lord is reaffirming his promise with Abram. He says, now open your eyes, Abram. Now Lot's gone. Look at where you're at. You're in the exact place that I told you I was going to send you to. You're in the exact place that I have already prepared for you and I'm giving to you as a gift. And this is where you're at and this is where you're going to to inherit. So then we get to chapter then we get to chapter 14. So I'm not going to read chapter 14. I want to summarize it, sort of storytell it for a minute because it's a crazy story um, that uh, at face value, you might wonder, why is this even here? Like, what is this, what is this showing us? What, it's like almost a seemingly random history of some kings that are battling against one another. It's actually the first war that we we'll ever see recorded in Scripture. So we might wonder, you know, what, what is it that is going on here, and why is, it, why is this important? Well, here's what we see in, uh, in this chapter. So there's a king named Cater Leomer who is the king of Elam, and he is like sort of over a bunch of different kingdoms. I don't think like millions of people, but think of a, of a king of a region uh, or of a, like, a, like states almost. And they are over and in charge of these, you know, uh, these, these, these groups, these people groups that are in the area. Now, this king was over top of and kind of put under his authority these five other smaller kingdoms. And, and so he was ruling over them until one day they rebelled against him. They revolted against him. And they all came together and they waged war against this king. And, and uh, so this one king, Cater Leomer, he gathers other kings to, to kind of join forces with him so they can uh, overtake the, the, uh, these other small, five smaller kingdoms. Now, <coughs> excuse me, if it weren't for one reason, we probably wouldn't even know this happened. But Lot gets caught up in this, this mess. And so you get to the end of chapter 14, and looking at verse 11 and 12, and it says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were one of the cities and one of the, the, the kingdoms, and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So here's what's happening. you got this battle that's waging war, this, this king, Cato uh, Leomer, takes, the, takes captive all these, these kingdoms, and he takes them back to his place. And Lot gets caught up in that mess. Maybe because he was never supposed to be there in the first place, but we're not told that. He's just there, and he gets taken captive. What happens next is pretty, like, crazy. And again, I have to confess that I was reading through this. I don't even, didn't remember this story, that, that Abram, when he gets word that Lot's been taken captive... He goes after him. It's like, it's like some like Liam Neeson taken kind of stuff where um, he, it says he gathers 318 men to go after him. So like he calls up the king and says, I have a particular set of skills and they're going to make me a nightmare for people like you. Nobody's getting the reference. You're getting, you're getting the reference. And he goes, like, he just goes after him. And so the, Abram leads 318 men and they go at night and they just take them back. So they gather them, and they defeat the army, and they leave running, and he takes, his people, he takes Lot and brings them back home. You can read it for yourself, and it, you'll believe me. Liam Deason taken. It's, it's all there. So God, again, is 
being faithful, and he's, he's, he's working through Abram's life, and, and Lot in the process is getting rescued by, uh, by the Lord, even when he was wandering from him. So you get this, this, this crazy, incredible, you know, amazing rescue. Now, at the end of this, though, we're, there's another passage that I want us to, to, to look at. Now, look at verse 17. It says, so after his return from the defeat of Cato-Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet, this is Abram, went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheved, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who, is, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so I hope you're wondering, who, who is Melchizedek? Like, what, what? We have never heard mention of this guy before. And what's crazy is that we're not going to hear any mention of him the rest of Genesis. Like, he's never going to be mentioned again. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, like the, the entire Pentateuch, not until the book of Psalms. Is he going to be mentioned one more time? And then not to the entirety of the rest of the scripture until the book of Hebrews. And we, get, we finally get this reflection on back on what's the significance of this man with this weird name who we don't know anything about him. And he just pops in human history. And we don't know anything about this guy. And we're not told anything about him either. So you're left with this guy like, who randomly shows up on the scene Blesses Abraham, it says, says some, you know, interesting words, and then just disappears off the face of the earth. Who in the world is Melchizedek? But what I love about this, and I think this is so perfect, God's timing is always perfect. So, right in the middle of God calling Abram, right, so you're going to have to follow with me just for, for a minute. God is calling this man out of his own country to a place that he's going to lead him to. And he's going to establish next chapter a covenant with Abraham. He's going to establish his covenant with him in, in, in steadfast love and in faithfulness. But before we get there, and as God's calling him in the midst of, of his utter failure, like his just complete failure against, against the Lord, God brings this mysterious king slash priest into the story. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it says he's also the king of Salem, which means peace. You have the king of righteousness, who is the king of peace, and also a priest to the Lord. And again, that's virtually unheard of, that someone would serve as an office of king and the office of priest at the exact same time. So, so who is this guy? But they don't even tell us. It's like it leaves us like with these, these little strings, but they're not going to give us any more details. All we know is that there is a man named Abram who is struggling to even just remotely obey the Lord. All that we're seeing is that he has a heart that is prone to wander. The reason I think this is perfect is because that's, that's me. Like my, my heart is so often prone to, to wander. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I was a... I, I don't know, ADD, ADHD, something. I'm totally not anymore, N not at all. Um, but when I was a kid, I, I, I used to wander off everywhere. 
Like, my mom could not keep me in, in one place. And, and so she told me recently of a story where we were at the mall, and I had, like, before she realized it, I had gone up the, I was about, about four or five, I'd gone up the escalator and then into an elevator before she could even catch me uh, in one of the department stores. Um, and so after several times of things like that happening, she decided to get one of those kitty leashes. Y'all ever seen those things? And, um, and so I had this harness that I would wear, and she would tie me, you know, leash me to her so she wouldn't lose her son. Um, the problem that I had is that I, I was so curious, and I just enjoyed talking to people. So I would walk off with anyone just to go talk with them, or if I'd see, you know, I, I, just, I was just curious. And so she, had, she grabbed this harness, and she said that the last time that she used it on me, um, we were in J.C. Penney's, and uh, she was shopping at one of the, you know, dress carousels or something. And I had gotten underneath one of the other ones and just wrapped around it and wrapped around it and wrapped around it until the entire thing came falling on top of me. I, would, I started screaming, and she said it was like this massive pandemonium in J.C. Penney's where all the ladies come running because they hear a kid screaming. So now mom's crying because I'm crying, and all the ladies are trying to pull the dresses off of me. And she said, this was like the biggest disaster of, of all time. And so she never, she never used it again uh, on me. Um, clearly, that didn't work. So there was nothing that was going to, to capture and, and hold me in. Spiritually speaking, though, but listen, listen to this. We can try to harness ourselves. We can attach leashes to ourselves and, and try to you know, keep, a, keep a wrap. But, but we, we can't change our heart. Only the God of the universe who created us and fashioned us can change our heart. And so we have a heart problem, fundamentally, that, that God has to address and that God has to fix. And so we, we could try to behavioral modification. We could try different things to try to keep ourselves in. But ultimately, we need God to do his work in us. There's a, a song um, that, that expresses this so well. It's the, the, the prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And then the prayer, but here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's, that's a prayer I have to pray often. Lord, here, here's my heart. If, if I try to take care of my own heart, I will be everywhere. So Lord, here's my heart. Take it and seal it for you. Would you do what only you can do in me? Well, so we have this, we have this passage we have Abram with a wandering heart. And if left to ourselves, we will fail again and again and again. But then enter Jesus. That's my story in my life is if left to myself, I will wander. But I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because he does for me what I cannot and I'm incapable of doing for myself. So then we get to the book of Hebrews. Now, if you would just turn there for, for just a minute. And I'm going to have to work through this, but um, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. I'm going to read several different passages. One of them is pretty lengthy, so just... Just try to meditate, think on it, um, and uh, I'm going I'll, I'll, I'm to kind of breeze through it a little bit 
quickly, um, but just just hang in. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There he is again. So now we've, we've got another mention of this, of this mysterious priest king. Chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham after returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, jump into verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are written or spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, what tribe he came from, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is talking about Jesus. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there's a, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who were formerly who formerly became priests, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death by continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Okay, take a deep breath. All right. So what in the world is happening here? So, so who is Melchizedek? And this, this person that 4,000 years ago, we get this mention of him, and then we don't see him again until this part. What in the world is, is going on? Melchizedek comes on the scene 
We don't know his father, his mother, his descent. He serves as a high priest. We have no clue who even set him, appointed him as high priest. He's high priest of the Lord before the Levitical priesthood's even established. That's not even happened yet. And I think this is what's so cool is because what God is, is giving is, is sort of a type of Christ. So it, it may not necessarily be a, a Christophany of Jesus in the Old Testament, but it's, it's certainly pointing to that there is one who reigns in his own rule, not under the Levitical priesthood, because that was insufficient. So there's a separate, other, better priesthood that supersedes uh, anything that we could try to do to make ourselves right before God. Because everything that we try, it ultimately comes short. And so what he's saying is that there is a, this, this person, this mysterious king priest who, who comes on the scene mysteriously and just like that disappears until later we see that this is the one that all of the Old Testament is going to point to. That everything that we mess up, he's going to make right. Everything that we do, every sin that we commit, everything that we, we do on our own and in our own strength, this is the one who's going to atone and, and, and make right. He's going to be the great high priest that our hearts desperately need. So he shows up at just the right time. I think it's so cool that he shows up before the sacrificial system has even started because he's saying the sacrifices that we're going to make are going to be insufficient. They're not going to work. They're not going to do what we hope that they will do for us. So basically he's saying that, that this man is going to come in the order of Melchizedek and he's going to do what we can't do for ourselves. Your sacrifices can't do it. The law can't do it. Uh, the priest certainly couldn't do it. And you and I can't do it. So we need someone who will do it for us. And so we can look back 4,000 years before you and I even existed and say, God had already made provision. He was already foreshadowing the one who would come, who would serve as the great high priest, who wouldn't put away sins with the sacrifice of an animal. He would put away sins with the sacrifice of himself. And you say, because you can't do it, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you and me. And so Jesus becomes the sacrifice. So he is the priest and he's the sacrifice. And he gives his life for you and me. Because we, on our own, we will always mess up. You and me, on our own, we will always fail. There's nothing that we can do about that. So God, in his grace and his love and his infinite wisdom, he does for us what we can't do. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. I titled the message this morning, Failure isn't final. But the reason that failure is not final in your life and in mine is because God is faithful. So our failure isn't final because God is faithful. So if we could just, if we wanted to just like grab onto one thought this morning, is that is, yes, I fail, but that's not the end of the story. Because my God is faithful and he has already paid for the sins that I've committed. And so what do I have to do? I look to him. I look to Jesus. I trust. I believe. I lay everything down for him. Because he came and gave down, laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, 
I think about this passage, I think about these stories, and I think about my own life in light of them, and how often I'm prone to, to turn, to go my own way, to fail. But I thank you, my Lord, that you don't leave me there. You don't leave me in that place. But by your grace, you, you welcome me home with open arms. And Lord, this morning, I pray that, that we would not live in guilt and shame and condemnation because you've already told us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So our story is not one of condemnation. Our story is one of reconciliation. So Lord, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And so right now this morning, would we just rest in that? Not, not work, not strive, not toil, just rest in that truth this morning. You are good, you are merciful, you are kind, and you extend your mercy and forgiveness to everyone who will call upon your name. So this morning, let that be our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this morning, we're going we're gonna to be praying. We're going to have a time of, of invitation, and, and here's what that looks like. Maybe you're here this morning, and there's never been that moment where, where you have placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been to church a thousand times. Maybe you grew up in church, but there's never been that, that, that time in your life where you've actually believed and, and, and believed in what Jesus did on the cross, that it was not just done arbitrarily, but that it was done for you. Maybe there's never been that moment where you have fallen on your knees before holy God have said, have mercy on me, a sinner. But you can do that right now, in this moment. As we're in just an attitude of prayer in this moment, that's, that, that's what my request would be for you, is just say, Lord, did you examine my heart? Would you know what's inside of me. And if you have questions about what it means to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we're going to be right here just a moment when we sing. I, I would love to chat with you. Like you can come and we can talk and we can pray. I can open scripture. We can talk about what it means to believe and follow after the Lord Jesus who gave his life for you and me. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been discouraged by failure. I think we've all been there before just discouraged by once again here I am again in failure before the Lord but I want you to know this morning that there is forgiveness and grace and mercy and help in your time of need it doesn't matter there's no place that you could go that's too far from him that he won't meet you and welcome you home with open arms and that can be right now this morning as you come back to the Lord Jesus so would you stand to your feet Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to come down here and just bow before the Lord. Maybe you want to take somebody next to you and just say, hey, would you come? Would you pray with me? Whatever it is, uh, please take these next few moments and seek the Lord.